Chris. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 95. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Old Drake of the band Evile. The English metal band has shared many similarities and coincidental parallels with Metallica over the years, which goes all the way back to their initial origin. Evile began as a Metallica tribute band. If you're enjoying Speaking Destroy, you can support us on Patreon, where you get access to bonus episodes called from my interview archives over the years, conversations with people like Randy Blythe from Lamb of God, Glenn Danzig, and Kirk Hammett. You can also leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review on Apple Podcasts. Those really do help. Follow Speaking Destroy on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. So here it is, my conversation with Old Drake. This is Speak and Destroy. This podcast really came about because I found that in my life and career as a journalist and a manager and different things that I do, that Metallica just comes up in conversation all of the time. It's such a universal reference point. And even I realized at some point that it's a lot like sports, where even when you hear someone complaining about the quarterback or the coach or or how you know the team hasn't been great since this year or that year like they still love the team and they're passionate about it and that's why they're complaining yeah and it's like metallic is that one band where every time they do something everyone in our little community knows about it regardless of, of where they stand in their fandom or lack thereof and uh, yeah so i i just thought you know as a workaholic why don't I turn these Metallica conversations I'm always either starting or finding myself in uh, into a podcast? <laughs> so that's your, your Metallica point is kind of like the positive version of Godwin's Law. I don't mm, know if you're familiar with Godwin's yes, Law. Yes, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Worked. It's the flip side of that. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely the, uh, the sunnier, uh, more positive version of Godwin's Law. Yeah. Amazing. And, and also maybe the more conversational Godwin's Law as opposed to the yeah. internet version. Yeah, I think the uh, the conversation ends when that's, it gets to that point. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to do a podcast like this, I have to have you on, and I'm shocked that it hasn't happened sooner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I am, uh, yeah, super, super psyched that we can get it going on here. You know, usually... One of the first questions that I ask is, uh, you know, hey, so let's talk about music. 
in your life, you know, was anyone musical in your family? And how were you first introduced to music? And how did you first hear Metallica? But in your case, the answers to those questions are all such a part of your story. It's right out of the gate. Right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. so, yeah. So, let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, you know, you did come from a family where your father is not only a musician, but a guitar player and was even in bands. And that music was just such a big part of the household and how, you know, your road to where you are now, how much Metallica was part of that. Fill me in. Yeah. We, we started out, me and my brother, um, we always knew my dad played guitar. And it was kind of, when we were kids, it was kind of like a, a novelty piece. So, like, our friends would come around, and my dad could, like, he could make the guitar cry. Uh, I, I can't remember how or anything, but it, it's like, wah, wah, wah. and he could make it cry, and my friends would be like, wow, and then he could play, like, the Batman theme tune <laughs> and all, all this weird stuff. And... It was, I just grew up a bit and forgot about guitar, really, but my dad was in bands in the 60s. Batman theme uh, covered by Voivod. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Old school bonus yeah. track. Sorry, go on. Um, yeah, so we, we got a bit older, and um, I just started picking up my brother's guitar, because he, he learned guitar when he was younger, and whenever he'd leave the house, I'd pick up it, and you know I'd play it out of tune, because I didn't know what I was doing. And then he'd come home and say, like, did you play my guitar? No, no, not me. And uh, it, it went on like that for a while. And my brother then got into Metallica through our drummer, Ben, because they went to school together. And I'd hear Metallica playing, but I was so young and unfamiliar with that music that I didn't understand at first. I was like, why, why are these drums so loud? And why is the guitar there? Why is this singer... Why is he singing like he's got nails in his mouth? And <laughs> I didn't understand it. And one day it just clicked because I heard it so much. And I think I was just stealing my brother's albums. Like he, he even had Lord and I liked Lord as well at the time. And then I went back for Justice and just fell in love from there. So it was definitely, it's all from my dad really because he, not that he, he didn't force guitar on us, but it was just there. You know, we got we had pictures of Jimi Hendrix up in the house, and we just accepted the guitar was a a dumb thing, and it just kind of bled into us somehow. <laughs> That's so killer. And as you were learning guitar, Metallica songs were a big part of that, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, there was a, a shop that my dad used to take me to. It was a guy called Maurizio Mielli. He's actually a really good guitarist and well known in in guitar circles. Um, he had loads of like tab books and drum sets in, in his shop, and I played drums. I actually started on drums before guitar, and I picked up the Master of Puppets guitar tab book. I didn't understand guitar tab, but I looked at it and picked up guitar, and the clean bit, the middle of Master of Puppets, I heard it in my head, and I looked at the tab and thought, I kind of understand what's going on here. So I just started teaching myself then from those tab books in Maurizio's shop. So let's talk about, you know, the the impact, like you said, that those that first experience of why are these trumps so loud? Why does the singer have nails in his mouth? Um, you know, and then as you get in, I mean, you, it, it's interesting because you mentioned load, and it, it sort of blows my mind 
to realize that as much as we may think about the load reload period as quote unquote new Metallica, that was decades ago at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it was more than 90 20 years. Uh, yeah, I think, 90, I think load was 95 or 96. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you still see it as new, don't you? <laughs> yeah. It's been very interesting. Yeah, it was that summer summer of 96. I think. Yeah, it's interesting. But, you know, and, and, and to folks who are a generation or two older than us, I'm sure they, they think about, you know, Ride the Lightning as new Metallica. Yeah, <laughs> you true. Know? My brother went to see Metallica on the 96 Lord Tour, and I remember he came home. I think it was the one where they, like, faked the pyrotechnics and everything going wrong and the explosions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he came home like, oh, God, did, did something went really wrong at the gig and loads of people got injured. And I was like, shit. And then they brought out the uh, the Cunning Stunts DVD, and we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. I love that there, you know that that existed in an era where you could get away with that because it wasn't being shared on YouTube. You know, the first night of the tour, like you can really I, I keep a secret like that. I I want that again. I don't I don't like the internet. <laughs> so let's talk about that transition from being a fan and learning guitar to actually playing. You know, getting in a room with other people on instruments and and playing. What were those? What were those first experiences like? It's it was bizarre because I was a big fan of Metallica and the music in school, and because I started on drums, I would I would drum on the tables and I'd get told off, and um, I didn't really think anything of it. I just I was learning the songs on the school tables on drums, and then Matt and Ben did they'd get together after school and they'd jam Metallica songs together. And I I asked my dad if I could go to one of their rehearsals and it was like in a, it was like a town hall kind of thing. Like it was half church, half town hall. And I remember going in and, you know, the guitar was really loud and the way Ben hits the drums is really loud. And I remember like my, my chest was pounding because it was that loud and, I came out with my dad and said, my chest was hurting then. And he said, yeah, that's that's what happens with loud music. And I was like, I like it. <laughs> so um, Because I was picking up the guitar now and then, I asked Matt and Ben if I could just join them because I'd learned a few Metallica songs. And I joined them and had, had a really good time. And, and we were all saying, we, we should do this. Like, there should be a, a band. And we didn't have a bassist at the time, but we thought, let's just get together and, and play some Metallica songs. And we had no goal in mind. It was just really fun. And it it just took off from there, really. <laughs> hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's funny, that difference that you, you don't quite realize it's going to happen until you're actually in that room. I remember, I've told this story on the podcast before, so I'll make it quick. I had some friends... In high school, we were all into the same bands, and they had a band, and they needed a singer, and they asked me if I wanted to sing and gave me a list of of songs to learn for practice. And, you know, it was like three Metallica songs, or four Metallica songs, maybe. And as I'm at home listening 
uh, and to the music and scribbling in my notebook and, and trying to be ready and super nervous and all that. My older brother, who was playing in bands already at that point, he's five years older than me. He walks by and, and asks me what I'm doing, and I tell him, and he says, he says, you know, it's not going to sound like that when you get there. <laughs> it's like what do you mean i was so focused on what i would sound like and he's like yeah yeah your your, your little buddies aren't going to sound like this <laughs> so, <laughs> don't be nervous about it brilliant um, and yeah it's uh it's different when you get in the room for sure yeah very different <laughs> so did this evolve then into the metal militia band yes um we were just having so much fun that we thought, like, we didn't even think about playing gigs at first. We just liked rehearsing, and then we thought, right, Metallica have a bassist, so I guess we need a bassist. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> there was a, a guy that Ben knew. He did a few rehearsals, but he wasn't really into it. And so we put a, an ad out in our local guitar shop called GTR at the time, uh, just asking for a, a metal bassist. You know, we put Testament, Metallica those kind of influences and we only got one call and that was Mike Alexander and he he met up with us for a rehearsal and he was he was kind of hidden behind the bass stack because he la- he later told us that all the bands he tried out for were just complete shit and he came to play with us and we were actually really good so he wasn't expecting it so he was kind of hid behind his cab like oh shit these guys are really good <laughs> He was kind of shy, and we took it from there because the, the only, it wasn't supposed to be a Metallica covers band. It was just the only songs that we knew collectively. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, at the start, I was like, oh, can we play Electric Crown by Testament? No, I don't know it. Oh, okay. Um, can we play some Annihilator? No, no, Annihilator is really hard. Right, um, let's just play Metallica then. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of it's a very similar trajectory to Metallica themselves, right? Where those first few shows yeah. could have been Diamond Head tribute shows. Yeah, you, that you wasn't really the I, intention. That's just the songs they knew. Exactly. I, I mean, it's kind of followed us around a bit. A lot of people do compare us to Metallica, and the the similarities between Metallica and us it's a bit too far. Like, I, I would have been fine with a few coincidences, mm. but. There's too many coincidences. It's been very bizarre. I mean, but, yeah, right, yeah, right from the very beginning. I, I don't imagine that you make your debut album with Fleming Rasmussen because you pulled his name out of a hat. <laughs> no, we, we genuinely got Fleming because we joked. Our label emailed saying, "What producer do you want to use for your first album?" And we literally joked, and we put Fleming Rasmussen. LOL, in an email. And Earache Records asked him, they emailed him and said, they sent some demos, and he said, yeah, let's do it. And they emailed <laughs> us, like, yeah, he's doing it. And we were like, wait, no, wait, what? And we didn't want him. We were just joking. <laughs> but it went really well. <laughs> You're like, we didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's the point. We thought it was literally impossible and way out of our budget and everything you know way out, way out of our league he was like the the hot girl in school and we were like the the nerds <laughs> when you put on your guitar uh, now as an adult and you're warming up or you're just riffing around 
if there are Metallica riffs coming out of your hands just naturally and comfortably, what are they usually? When I put on a guitar to warm up for a gig, I always play, well, it's not a Metallica riff first, but I always play the Symptom of the Universe riff by Sabbath. Right. And then the, the Metallica riffs that I most go to, mostly go to, are Hit the Lights, the main first riff, Mm-hmm. And I guess it would be the middle heavy riff of Blackened. Right. And then I guess, what else would I play? Mm, actually, strangely enough, it would be 2x4 from Load. It's <laughs> just oh, a cool riff. Yeah, it is a cool riff. Yeah, it's a really underrated song, I think. And, and you know, and that, that was one of the songs that they played before the record was out. There was like some shows. In London, I think, like a fan yes, club show yeah, and a did, warm up yeah. and a fight. Yeah, and they, they did, I think, Devil Dance and 2x4, and it was like yeah. the, the Hetfield mullet era. And yeah, the half mullet. I love that. The half, well, yeah. Uh, Kirk, Kirk was looking very Chris Cornell at that time with the, <laughs> yeah. the shorts and combat boots. Brilliant. Yeah, I am a, uh, a passionate load reload era defender, I think. Yeah, me too. Me you know, too. Much like User Illusion 1 and 2, there's an argument that. A better single album but i've even sort of yeah. let go of that of that argument at this point because i think there is a lot of great stuff across all four of those albums between both of those bands and, and there's something about the bloat of it all in guns and roses case that is part of the atmosphere and the vibe of those two records is yeah. how insane you, they are and how much how much there is use your illusion to uh, one and two i listen to all the way through i don't think there's a dud track on there i love them all um, the same with Load and Reload. I think even the weaker songs, they kind of have to be there because to me, an album is like a package. Mm-hmm. And making albums, I understand that you have they have to be in the right order. It has to be the right vibe. And I have no problem with any songs on Load and Reload. The only song I sometimes skip is um, Better Than You on Reload. It just there's something about it that if I'm not in the mood, I'm just like, no, skip. <laughs> All I totally agree, and I think that there's something about different tracks that are almost connective tissue between other tracks. Yeah. You know, where maybe yes. maybe in a vacuum it's a different thing, but in the context of the whole album, yeah, I I totally agree. And I I put Outlaw Torn in my top ten Metallica songs. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the the way the way songs go into each other, I know this from doing it, but this this is what's missing in the, the age of streaming where people just play playlists and random songs mm-hmm. is that you you naturally used to hear the next song. Like if you heard um, Ain't My Bitch and it ended, you, your brain is waiting for 2 by 4 to come yes. in. Yes. And in this yes. age, it's just like it doesn't matter anymore. And that, I hate that. I miss that so much. And that's what I love about Load is every single song, one after another, I just want to hear the next one come, and they're all great to me. <laughs> yeah, I I love to live is to die, but there's I don't know that there's ever been a moment in my life where I've listened to that song and not listened to Dyer's and Captain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just you know, yeah, exactly. it's just yeah. the way it is. <laughs> I think you should be arrested deal. if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and there, and there's something about double albums when they're split into separate releases. 
there's a perception that seems like it's inescapable that whatever the second one is, that that's the lesser one for some reason. Yeah. You know, like, okay, reload, that must have been the, the B-sides. And it's like, no, 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 those, that was conceived as a double album. They just got to a point where they were like, we have to stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll come back and finish the rest. Um, but there, but for whatever reason, they don't seem to ever really shake that stigma. I've noticed, you know, the band Periphery, they, they did a, a two album in one day, use your illusion thing. I think theirs was Alpha and Omega. Uh, mm. We went uh, the band Demon Hunter, who I, I work with as their manager. They did a two in one day a couple of years ago called War and Peace. And if you look at the sales figures, Periphery, Alpha, and Omega, Demon Hunter, War and Peace, they're almost exactly the same, except Omega sells a little less than Alpha. <laughs> And peace sells really? a little less than war. And it's just, yeah, and I feel like there's just got to be some sort of, you know, Guns N' Roses had a neat little hat trick because uh, You Could Be Mine was in the Terminator 2, and that became this huge single, and that was on Illusion 2. And yeah. so I think they were able to beat that by nature of that little trick. But I, I don't know what it is. It's just something, I guess, about the way our brains are wired. Is we just think, okay, the second that, That's interesting be as good because... It's interesting because growing up, I kind of saw Illusion 2 as the better album. Mm. And it might be because of the You Could Be Mine thing, but the older I've got, the more I see them like Load and Reload because I don't see Load or Reload as better or worse because, I, I don't know, I, because they were double albums. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't see them as better or worse because they, I think because there wasn't meant to be one album. I, I don't judge them as better or worse. Like, in, in a way, I wish they'd have carried on on the route that they were going on Load and Reload. I really mm -hmm. like that kind of... Because Reload was quite dark in a way. Absolutely. And I just wish they'd have carried on just like one more album worth of that road. You know, I, I did like... Um, wait, what was the album after Reload? Uh, well, St. Anger. Right, let's skip that. I, I was going to uh, say, you, I, I already knew that you were telepathically that you meant Death Magnetic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I liked what they did on that, but it was kind of there was like something missing in between, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, you know what, that, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but I think you're absolutely right. And, and something that I have really embraced is with Hardwired, it seemed like they took whatever the lessons were from Death Magnetic and then relaxed a little bit enough to go, okay, we, we can still bring in some of the production quality of the Black Album and some of the vocal harmonies and things like that from the Load and, and Reload era. I think Hardwired is, you know, benefits tremendously from kind of this merging of, of all those different eras. Yeah, it, it does. Um, and it, it's hard to say because um, the production lets them down for me. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I missed the Black Album kind of production of the Load and Reload. That yeah. They're just so heavy and cool. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, the, the drum sound, especially, and just the thickness and the warmth of everything. Uh, there is something a little more stripped back and, and cold. Uh, you know, there's there's something about the, the Rick Rubin, the dryness that I think works for Slayer, and I think part of that is because Slayer is so fast and ferocious and you know, that, that, that ACDC, you know, cult electric Danzig one Rick Rubin thing 
works yeah. great for Slayer because it's speed metal, you know. But uh, I I don't think that it benefited Metallica in quite the same way. No, uh, I get I get it, but you know that rawness. You, you need I know it sounds bad, but you kind of need that polished '80s approach to Metallica's sound, like the the guitar harmonies. I I remember hearing one of the live songs before the album came out, and I thought, you know what, those harmonies are going to sound great on the album. And they just didn't merge like they used to. Like, for me, guitar harmonies have to sound almost like one guitar is playing them. And they were so separated and clunky that it just it didn't sit right for me. Now, as, as a guitar player, do you, are you cued in to, like, you know, I've, re- I've read about, I'm not a guitar player but I've read about how load and reload, you know, a lot of the tunings are, are different. Do you think that that made any kind of difference? Um, yeah, I'm eval tuned to the same tuning that load and reload do. They, they dropped one semitone, so one fret on the guitar from the Black Album. Hmm. And um, it just, it adds that extra layer of heaviness, and it's my favorite tuning, and it really benefited from it. I mean, the songs on, on load, they wouldn't have packed as much punch if they were in the older tuning, uh, like yeah, like two by four, if it was in the E tuning, it just wouldn't be as heavy. It's just it has that extra little bit of spice, I think. Yeah, and I wonder uh, about those records too. Something that doesn't really get discussed much anymore, but you know, those are the only records where Kirk played rhythm, and and obviously James Hetfield is the greatest rhythm guitar player in all of rock and metal ever. Yes, uh, but uh, you know, I wonder. I wonder what we're missing, maybe, without Kirk doing rhythm, or or if we're not missing anything, maybe it's better that he doesn't. But it but it's interesting that you know, uh, Death Magnetic is when they return to that and Justice for All style of Hetfield doing like everything but the but the solos. Yeah, I, I must admit, I prefer James doing everything because he is such he's such a tight guitarist that I love to hear it. So. I, I, I appreciate other guitarists doing things, but it's just from a production production's point of view, it's so much better to just have one guitarist doing the rhythms. Yes. And uh, Slayer, it works for Slayer having two because it's so chaotic and it's it's two different colors that really merge together really well. But mm. for Metallica's kind of thing, I, I don't think no, it's it's got to be James. <laughs> yeah, I I think people fail to realize, you know, for all of the jokes about the missing bass on Injustice for All, you know, the other side of that argument is, well, where would you have put it? <laughs> there's there's no yeah. place for it to go. It's just this, yeah, this super tight oppressive rhythm, you know. I I love Justice and I know it sounds bad, but if there was bass on it now, I I wouldn't want to listen to it. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I, I've I've had this conversation before too because it's like, you know, you see these and justice for Jason type things online, and every time you hear one, it's like Lee is playing bass. You know, it's like because it's completely overcompensated, right? Like we've added bass, so now it's crazy. And yeah, I mean, I've, there's a thing on YouTube that and justice for Jason thing. Yeah, yeah, and it it is cool because he he plays some really cool lines and especially on, on the song justice for all the, the there's like one note he plays i think it's on a five string really low and even from a music theory point of view it's such a clever 
approach that he did, but it's just it's just a shame that it didn't happen. But there is something, you know, like when the anniversary box set came out and people were like, oh, maybe they're going to give us a remixed version of the album with the bass in there. And, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Like, and Jason's gone on record as saying he agrees with us also, which is like, no, no, don't mess with it. Don't screw with it. It's too, it's too late, you know? Like, this is the way we remember it. This is the way we love it. You know, we don't need to hear it that way. It's part of history now. I mean, it's it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. So we we were you mentioned some of the, you know, how many coincidences and things there have been along the way of with your career and, and theirs. Have you had the opportunity at any point to have that conversation with any of those guys? None of us have ever met any of Metallica. Um, I I have a, a, a bizarre thought about meeting Metallica because being in a band. You meet a lot of your heroes and some become friends. Some might be a bit of a dick and it ruins things slightly. And I remember going to my first gig, which was Cannibal Corpse with um, Creator. And when when Cannibal Corpse came on stage, I like felt that magic of like, wow, it's them. Mm-hmm. And since being in a band for so many years, that magic kind of, disappeared because you know you're backstage you see all how everything works and they're just humans like anyone else but metallica are the only band in the world that i have left that i still feel that magic for Mm. and i'm not so sure that i ever want to meet them or know them because i want to i want to keep them up on stage i think because if i meet them and even if they're really nice you know it's it's not the same anymore. <laughs> so I might, I don't ruin it. <laughs> I, I can to, I totally get that. And I see that, uh, you know, for myself with, yeah, different people. I mean, it extends to authors, filmmakers. Yeah, I totally get that. Uh, but by the same turn, you know, when you do have those experiences, as you mentioned, you know, you meet people and they become your friends or whatever. I mean, it, it's very nice to be pleasantly surprised or for someone yeah. to turn out. Exactly as you had hoped or expected. Yeah. Those those are great moments also. I want to talk to you about the record that you have, but before we did that, I wanted to actually jump way backwards and talk a little bit about the solo record you made. Oh, yes. That that, that ties in nicely with meeting your heroes and so forth. Uh, you know, I know, like myself, you're a big Death fan, and, uh, you know, having James Murphy involved with that record and then... Uh, of course, uh, the great Barrier legend and Speak and Destroy podcast guest Gary Holt <laughs> guessed yes. it on your record. Let's talk about that a little bit, a bit, a little bit, and you know what sort of uh, muscles you were maybe able to exercise in the solo setting that don't happen with the band, and, and then maybe how that might have uh, figured into what yes. the band ends up doing later. Yes, so um, I never intended to do a solo album or or any other music, really. When I left Eval initially, um, I said to everyone, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done with music. It's, it's an unrealistic way of living. That's it for now. And I emailed our label, Erec Records, and said, said, look, thank you guys for the four Eval albums, everything you've done for us. And the, the label boss said, 
Yeah, thank you for working with us. Uh, we still want to work with you. Do you fancy doing like a Steve Vai kind of solo thing? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I thought like, well, yeah, why not? But I told them, look, I'm done with all this. I don't want to tour. And they said, no, no, it's fine. You don't need to tour. Let's just release an album. So I thought, yeah, why not? So there was no pressure at all from them. They just said, do it at your own pace. Uh, so um, I got all my new gear to record it. And I just went down the Steve I road, basically, and Joe Satriani. And it came to a point where I was writing all these songs, and I thought, Jesus, there's so many solos that I've got to write. Um, and then the idea of guests came up. And I was speaking to um, Josh from Silosis, mm-hmm. who's also in Architects now. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll throw a solo down. So then I thought, right, who else do I know that I can um, stick some solos in? So <laughs> Pawn off some of the workload. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, but shush. <laughs> um, so I messaged Gary and I said, is there any chance you have any time to do it? Um, I also messaged, you know, James Murphy. There was mm-hmm. a friend of Michael Amit who worked for um, uh, Guitar World, I think, who put a solo down. And yeah, it, it went from there. And the, the best thing was that what I set out everyone's section, like the time codes and everything, say, so you solo here. And they all sent their sections and we put them together. And it just sounded perfect. There was nothing. There was no need to edit anything, and you know, because sometimes if you if you splice things together, it just sounds stupid because nothing complements what just happened. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. and the 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 road through the song of all these different guitarists was just perfect, and especially Gary Holtz, he did it in one take because he didn't have time. He literally plugged in his Kemper amp into his laptop. I think they might have been on tour, and. He just shredded one one take solo out, and he said, "How's that?" I said, "Yep, perfect." <laughs> That's awesome, though, right? Because there's so much magic in that. Yeah, there's all sorts of different ways. You know, there can be magic in something that someone labors over for weeks, but there's also that, just something that, so cool me. about that. <laughs> I, I, I'm the laborer. I'm I'm not I'm not a one take kind of guy. I I need to like do homework on my solos and get them perfect. You know, but. Guys like Gary Hall are just like, done. (laughs) Well, I know with Kirk being one of your influences that you've mentioned in the past, in addition to, you know, you mentioned Annihilator earlier, and I know you've talked about Jeff Waters before, and Marty Friedman, and, you know, all these greats. Um, But with Kirk, you know, one of the things as a fan I really love about watching those studio documentaries and everything is seeing how much thought and focus goes into the solo. And also the role that Lars plays in arranging solos and, yeah. you know, kind of sitting there through the process. I think it's a, it's a really good dynamic, I think, they have, because um, I remember speaking to Fleming about um, Kirk's solos, and he, he admitted, he said, sometimes it didn't work, and then he'd, he'd have to work on them a bit. But when he worked on them, they worked so well that just no one else could do what Kirk does. I mean... If if you give, if you pretend that Fade to Black never existed, and then you gave that song to someone and said, play the opening solo to Fade to Black, like you write the solo, no one could ever have written as 
memorable a solo as Kirk did for mm. that. Mm. There's just something about... I mean, Kirk isn't even the, the greatest guitarist in the world in terms of ability, but what, what he does is so unique in, in approach and the fact that you, you know his solos, like you can sing them. Yes. That, that, that means a lot more to me than someone playing sweeps and playing at a million miles an hour because I, I don't give a shit anymore. The older I've got, I see someone shredding now and just go, so? Yes. Like, what else now? What else are you going to do? Where are you going to go with that? And that's, that's why I love Kirk so much that I think he is so underrated, especially these days because everyone's a musician now. <laughs> and everyone's like, Kirk can't play for shit anymore. I was like, no, fuck you. Kirk is, Kirk is one of the best. Just because of what what he can do, and yeah, I could speak for hours about this, but yeah, Kirk is up there, definitely my top three. I I couldn't agree more because there's there's soul, heart, passion, personality, and that number one thing, like you said, solos that you could sing. You know, you can uh, you can yeah. sing along to. There's one of the first I'm things thinking- that drew me to this style of music is when the solos are like a song within a song. You know? Yeah. It, it goes further than singing. I mean, any, any guitarist can play a solo that you can sing, but not many guitarists can play a solo that you can sing that you re- will remember for the mm. rest of your life. Mm. Like Slash can do it. The Slash, Kirk Hammett, <sighs> Steve Vai, um, Satriani, definitely. You know, and a, a few others of them, but we're getting too much into the, sh- the shredders now. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Kirk and Slash are, are two of my most favorite guitarists, just because everything they they have played or written on albums, I, I could sing without even listening to the songs. Yeah. They're, they're that good. And there's emotion that's tied into those. Whereas, yeah, of course, there are so many guitar players where it's technique and flashiness, and it's like, wow, this is how hard that was. Yeah, the, and, and again. Illusion one and two, when we're talking about the overindulgences of it, so much additional depth, emotional depth comes out of what Slash is doing. Yeah, a hundred percent. He, there's, there's something Slash can do. He can, I mean, he can play really fast. He can shred his tits off, but um, <laughs> when he when he plays with feel and soul it's just I, I can't even describe it I can't even fully talk about it because I, I don't understand it he's just he taps into something I mean musicians like Miles Davis could do it and John Coltrane they mm-hmm. they can play three they can play three or four notes and mean more than a hundred notes ever could and Kirk and Slash have that for me brilliantly put I, I totally agree it's it's funny because once upon a time I, I thought of uh, you know the song Coma on Illusion One I think it's the last song. Yes, yeah. Uh, for the longest time in the back of my mind that was kind of like oh that's one of those overindulgent songs. It's like it's cool and I appreciate it, but I don't really you know need to hear it all the time. And then something about they played it live. I went to go see them uh, twice on the you know the more in the more recent era. And they played it live, and I sort of rediscovered it. And man, now in the last few years, I'll go and listen to that song, and it feels too short, <laughs> which I know is an insane thing to say, but it's like I'm still, you know, 
it, it could be like 50% as long as it is, and I would still be like just fully immersed yeah, I, in it what's happening. I don't think of Coma as a long song at all. I only know it's long when I look at how long the, the song is. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, that, and, that's, and that says something to it, right? I mean, that, and that's great with movies when, you know, there are 90-minute movies that feel like they're going on forever if they're not very good, whereas you can sit, yeah. you can sit through a three- or four-hour movie if it's great and not really feel the, the clock ticking. Yeah, true. I, I have that with, um, we love the, the Lord of the Rings films, mm-hmm. and unless you do a marathon, you you just enjoy them. You, you don't even care how long they are. They're just great to watch. But yeah. it's definitely the same with music. Like if Creeping Death could, could have been eight, like how long is it? I think it's like six and a half minutes or something. Yeah, it could have been nine or ten minutes, and I don't care. It's just so good. I agree, and and that's another one too. When you know it as well as you and I do, from having heard it so many times, it feels short. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. like, I'm like, oh, we're already to the dies now. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, true. <laughs> um, so you know, yet another parallel, albeit uh, later in in terms of stage of your career but you know very famously james hatfield didn't intend to be the singer for metallica necessarily and we know uh you know john bush who i've also had on the podcast you know was approached fairly late into their career so to speak post kill them all about Mm -hmm. singing for them and megadeth as well Uh, mustaine didn't plan on being the singer and they actually had a singer that they dried out and it became sort of almost utilitarian of like, okay, well, uh, I'm going to sing. That's that's just simpler. Let's just do that. Yeah, uh, it seems to be a theme in metal bands. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and, and and Chuck Schuldner, who we've we've you know talked about already a, a tiny bit. You know, he he always seemed uncomfortable with his vocals for whatever reason. Like he wanted to, you know, control denied being his big like this is the kind of singing that I wanted or the kind of singer that I would want or whatever, you know, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. How, it, how, how many of these amazing front men, uh, really didn't see themselves as the front person. Um, yeah, so let's, I'm, so I let's mean, compare I, I, that I, I, to I, your experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is my experience because <laughs> I was kind of forced, not, not forced into a corner, but, um, Matt left, and we 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 had a dilemma of how do we handle this? Because I know what metal fans are like; mm-hmm. they they don't want a change of singer. And you can maybe do it once, when, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Sepultura, and I'm a big fan of old Sepultura. And I know how people react to new Sepultura. Mm-hmm. So we had to talk about it. And the only way around it was a familiar face. And the only person who could do it was me. So Ben couldn't do it because the stuff he's playing, he cannot sing and play at the same time. Um, our bassist, Joel, didn't want to. <laughs> and at the time, we had no other members. So it was just us three. And we thought, right, it's going to have to be me. So I've just been on a journey of learning how to do it, really. Well, first of all, I think that that was a very smart decision. I remember when Killswitch uh, split with Howard, 
you know, and having conversations with those guys where I was saying, look, my, my two cents is you have to get Jesse back. That's the only, <laughs> you know, it's got to be, yeah. you know, it's a blessing that you made it this far with Howard. You don't get the Gary Sharon moment. You don't want the Gary Sharon moment, you know. Yeah. And Maiden's another great example where it's like, yeah, they they certainly pulled it off, you know, times 100. But third time, you know. So, yeah, I, th- I think that you absolutely made the right choice. The familiar face. Yeah, I, I think if, if it was a brand new guy, no one recognizes him, different voice, it would have just, there'd have been no point. Yeah, yeah. And, and especially when there, yeah, there's the familiarity, there's the familial bond you know i i love and appreciate liam gallagher solo uh (laughs) i i i could watch you know the oasis mtv unplugged that noel did all the vocals loved that you know yeah i think it was the i'm not that you asked me what i think but i think it was a smart thing to do yeah thank you i'm a big fan of oasis and me too you know i watched their documentaries and everything i've just got to consider that i mean it's been 98% positive. Most people are just like, this sounds great. This is going to be a great album. But there's that 2% that just like, it's not my, I don't care. This is shit. You know, they, they don't even give it a chance that they're that angry that Matt's not in the band. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there's someone somewhere, generations ago perhaps, that, uh, you know, didn't accept Brian Johnson in ACDC. Yeah. yeah you, can't, you can't go on without Bon Scott. You should quit. So, yeah, it seems that it uh, has been overwhelmingly positive. So for you as the musician, you know, what's it been like to kind of find your footing there and and figure that out and, and get comfortable and, and feel confident about it? What, being the singer as being, well? Being the singer as well, yeah. It's At first it was really daunting because I know how hard it is to play some of our songs and sing at the same time. Um, I'm okay with playing and singing at the same time because I've been doing backing vocals and to do backing vocals I'd have to sing the bit leading up to it in my head so I kind of had the practice but I think it's more of the um, the sustainability of your voice on tour so that's what I'm doing now I'm working with um, Melissa Cross mm. to just get my voice healthy you know I when I I recorded the demos for this album as a guide for Matt, I said, these are the lyrics, this is what the vocal's going to be. And I tasted blood whenever I did the vocals because I was just shouting from my throat mm. and really damaging it. And that's what Hetfield did for a lot of the start of Metallica's career. I think it wasn't until after the Black Album that he didn't sing from his throat. He learned how to sing properly, mm-hmm. which is a lot of people's like, oh, Metall- uh, James has lost his like, cool vocals. Like, no, he stopped damaging he's going to be able to continue Um, to do this (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly yeah so it it, it stopped being daunting when i started learning more about vocals and melissa's help and um musically it hasn't really changed because i write the same way that we we have most of the time we've been doing this um i just have the extra consideration of what am I going to sing when I'm playing this? Because I didn't really think of it before for Matt. It would just, I'd write the riffs and I'd be like, right, that's the verse. You write the, the vocals. But I'm now writing thinking, I'm going to have to sing over this. I better not make it too complicated. 
And I've, I have got a new appreciation for what Matt did because we did some tours that were stupid tours. We did five months in North America. Did like 170 some gigs over five months. What? And wait, that doesn't matter. Whatever. But yeah, he did a lot of gigs and probably blew his voice out so many times. And I just never thought much of it. And now, yeah, he, he did a lot. He worked his ass off. <laughs> So, top five Metallica songs. <laughs> oh, Could you make a top um, five? Uh, I wish this was sent before so I could think about it longer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. I, I sprung it on you. I sprung it on myself. I, I would say... Well, it, it, we, we, could, we could go another route, too. I like to do top five sometimes, and I also like to do dream set lists. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll do top five. Um, Blackened is always up there. I'd say one is my number one. What mm. one is just the best Metallica song for me? It's it has everything. It has. I mean, when I last saw them, it was at, um, a few years ago at Manchester um, Stadium, and they had the cool video screens, you know, with the footage playing behind the songs. Yeah, and all all the emotions, and the ups and downs of one live with that video screen behind it. It just it hit me how good that song is, and there was someone sitting behind us as we were in like the stall at the side, and they they were obviously not Metallica fans, and I I heard them say like wow this is really good, <laughs> and I heard that and I thought yeah they're right even even someone who isn't a fan of this music is hearing and seeing this, like, being impressed by it. So one is definitely up there. Uh, blackened, uh, just because it's blackened, it's just insane. Uh, I don't know how you write a song like that. It's, it's unfathomable. <laughs> um, other ones. Um, this is so hard. Uh, Ride the Lightning song. Yes, we got. Oh, so, and so far, you've got a, a Newstead riff and uh, a Dave Mustaine riff on your list. Like oh it. yeah, yeah. Um, Seek and Destroy has got to be up there. Else, you're at four already. You want you want you want to go something from Load Reload? Yes, I would say. You know what? I would probably say. And a lot of people won't like this, but until it sleeps. Wow. Because it is such a well written song. Yeah. Like, forget about Metallica's standards. I mean, like, someone who isn't a Metallica fan could listen to that and think that is a really good, well written song. Every time I hear it, I'm just, just blown away at how perfect it is. And I know a lot of the, um, the gatekeepers will be like, boo. <laughs> but no, it's a great song. I love that song. I even love the video, but that upsets oh, people too. <laughs> yeah, no, the video is amazing. And I know a lot of the um, bullied will disagree, but it's it's brilliant. Yeah. Beat it. Yeah, it's a fascinating song structure-wise too, the sort of the, the perfect simplicity of how it's put together. And then I, I remember learning years later that the working title was F-O-B-D for Fell on Black Days. They were listening to a lot of Soundgarden. Um, oh wow! I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like oh, okay. 
it makes sense. And th- there's a thing that I've found, and it's just from, I guess, interviewing so many bands, right, that working titles can be deceptive in so much as a band, their, their, their conversational shorthand with each other might be like, oh, this is the Smashing Pumpkins song. This is the, you know, Slayer song. This is the Stone Temple Pilots song. And to the outside ear, those songs aren't going to sound anything like those bands. Uh, it's more in the moment the the guys in the band know that like oh the, there's this tone that i'm going for here or there's this riff that has this note that you know can be very esoteric uh you know so yeah. it's not necessarily fair to, it's too reductive to say like oh until it sleeps that's like talc doing soundgarden um but there is a, a spirit of that in there and there's a, a spark where it's like yeah you know we're all we're all the sum total of our influences it's all how we combine things in ways that haven't been combined before and then pushing it through our, our own experience that makes it unique. But, yeah. Yeah, I always, always found that interesting. Uh, and, and yeah, to me, that whole era is a lot of Alice in Chains and then Lizzie and uh, but through well, I, the prism I of Metallica. I have a bizarre theory about Lord, and I'm mm. probably wrong. Metallica did that big tour with Guns N' Roses for the Black Album. Mm-hmm. And I know how bands think. And a part of me feels like if you listen to Guns N' Roses, uh, Illusion 1 and 2, and then listen to Lord, a part of me feels like Hetfield and Ulrich were watching Guns N' Roses every night and thinking, what about these songs makes them good? And there's parts of Lord, that make me think they are Metallica's versions of Guns N' Roses songs because there's just if you, next time you listen to Lord, try and imagine it's Guns N' Roses playing them and there's some parts of it that are like, yeah that's really Guns N' Roses and whoever I've told this theory to, they've always just said, no, you're wrong <laughs> but I, I can't go into detail how without listening to it and explaining but yeah. like the way they end songs and uh, there's just something. I I think there's something there that's a Guns N' Roses influence. I love this. This is the kind of stuff I love, and I will absolutely do this the next time I listen. <laughs> um, I, you know, and I and I think that there's uh, plenty of circumstantial evidence to think that that's even kind of a one-upmanship of like you know, oh, we can take what we already have and take a little take a little bit of their magic or whatever's working for them. And, uh, you know, do it better. Yeah. Or, yeah, I can. Yeah, I, maybe, I can see maybe. That. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a fun one to you, which I think is not based on any kind of fact at all. Maybe, but the next time, uh, the next time you're listening to Shotgun Blues, which I think is from Illusion Two. Uh, yeah. Imagine that it's Dave Mustaine singing. Okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I, I think there's I, something I, I about think... that song, and it might be. The massive Megadeth fan that I am, and that I uh, that I was when that record came out, but I've always heard that song, and I've always heard like it sounds like Axel doing. I can hear it in my head, and I I know what you mean. Yeah, he could fully just be on the song, really, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and the the attitude, and even the lyrics, and everything like it's yeah, it sounds like a song that Mustaine could have written. I mean, to be fair, sometimes Mustaine sounds like Axel anyway, with that that raspy nasal thing yeah and they both have so, that yeah. a little johnny rotten in their sneer and so does liam gallagher which i think 
you and I are maybe two of the only people in the world that understand how all these things connect. <laughs> yeah. We're probably wrong, but <laughs> uh, you. But yeah, usually it just sounds like a bunch of disparate. And, you like that, and you also like this. Like, you know, uh, when I found out what a huge fan of Oasis Lars is, I was like, well, makes sense to me. Yeah, true. Well, I appreciate you taking so much uh, time out of your day to do this, or evening rather. That's no, all right. Uh, it's been a, a huge pleasure. That's great. I, I would love to have you back sometime and talk even more Metallica anytime. Anytime you're up for it. Yeah, I, I'd love to. I, I I could do this for two three hours if I if I'm honest. But you know, it's, <laughs> Same. it's, it's almost midnight here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is this is uh this is exactly how it happened because I just love having these conversations anyway, and I had to figure out a way to. Feel like I was still being productive while having. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, killer. Uh, well, thanks so much, and here's uh, success. New record, new role in the band, which I think is, is killer and exciting. Exciting new era for you. Thank you very much, yeah. and thank you for having me. <laughs>